I'm Meg Malone, Vermont Edition digital producer. And I'm Vermont Edition producer Sam Gill-Rosen. Earlier this summer, Vermont Edition spoke with the leading candidates in the gubernatorial race, hearing their views on the top issues facing the state in a series we called Meet the Candidates. In advance of the Vermont primary on August 9th, we've gathered our conversations with all five candidates together in one podcast. In June, Jane Lindholm spoke with Democrat Peter Galbraith about his positions on gun control, marijuana legalization, health care, and more. Here's the interview. Enjoy. Peter Galbraith, welcome back to the show. Jane, good to be with you. You've said that you believe there is a way to move forward with publicly financed health care coverage, and this is one of the key issues that you'd like to highlight in your campaign. This is despite the fact that the current governor set that as one of his largest priorities and failed. What specific ideas do you have for controlling costs and making sure Vermonters have access to quality health care? Well, first, I don't think failure was inevitable. The problem was that the governor came forward with a plan to provide universal publicly financed health care, but he didn't come forward with a plan to pay for it. And in fact, I I think I'm the only elected official in the state of Vermont to offer legislation to pay for it, which was – there was only one way to do it, and that was with the payroll tax. At this point in time, I think we need to approach that goal incrementally. I think there are three ways to do it. Uh, One would be to provide universal publicly financed primary care. Uh, That would save uh, primary care doctors a lot of time, so it would increase the amount of doctor time available. Uh, And it also would mean that Vermonters would get to see their doctor sooner and possibly head off more expensive procedures later. Another approach would be to... uh, put everybody 26 and under under Dr. Dinosaur, I would say do it with no premiums. Uh, And uh, that would mean that people who were getting health care wouldn't have to get family plans. They could have single or couples plans, or you could have a subsidized public option on the exchange. Each of those options would cost around 250 to $300 million, and they could be financed with a 2% payroll tax paid by the employer who would get the business uh, uh, deduction. So uh, that is a the start of a path forward, and I think we, we should continue down that road. How would you get a payroll tax through the legislature? I mean, this is an, another thing that Governor Shumlin has suggested. He wanted to have a payroll tax to address the cost shift in Medicaid payments to doctors, and that did not get traction in the legislature. So how would you finance a 2.2 percent payroll tax to get this public option? Well, I think that there are two points. By the time that Governor Shumlin had made that proposal, he really had lost a lot of credibility on the on the health care issue for having campaigned so hard on single payer, you know, the guy who would get tough things done and then abandoning it. And second, his payroll tax, I think, was, was hard for people to understand. What I'm talking about something is something that would provide a concrete benefit uh, basically to all Vermonters. Uh, they would uh, – all Vermonters under tw- 26 and under would have free health care. All Vermonters would have uh, free primary care or Vermonters who use the exchange would find a public option that was much cheaper uh, and better than than the one that they would get uh, uh, through the uh, private plan. So, you know, there, there would be a, a connection between the tax and the and the benefit, which was really not there with what uh, Governor Shumlin was proposing. Uh, Peter Galbraith, one of the other major points of your platform includes raising the minimum wage immediately to twelve fifty an hour, with a gradual increase to fifteen dollars an hour. And you argue that this would improve the bottom line for Vermont across the board because it would also improve the lives of low-income Vermonters and require less money to come out of taxpayer pockets for social services. Why is this such a priority for you? 
there's nothing bigger that we could do to make Vermont affordable for those who find it the least affordable. For whom is Vermont not affordable? Not the people who make a lot of money, their taxes go up a little bit. It really is not going to make a big difference to them. But if you're working for a minimum wage, which in Vermont is less than $20,000 a year, well, it's very tough to get by. It's tough to provide childcare. It's tough to find affordable housing. And we have these long discussions about, for example, uh, providing affordable housing where, you know, a few million dollars might make a few units available. But the way to make housing affordable, the way to make life affordable is to pay people more. And so uh, what I'm proposing is uh, going to $12.50 immediately and $15 by 2021. That represents a 50 percent pay increase for those who make the least. It's going to make things more affordable for them. But there are benefits for everybody. First, low-wage workers spend a very high percentage of their extra income. They spend it locally, unlike wealthier people who may spend it out of state. So there's a boost to our economy. Uh, and finally, taxpayers basically subsidize low-wage employers through things like the earned income tax credit. So if we ended up raising the minimum wage to $15 an hour, we would save $18 million in, in taxes and that would go a long way to fund another plan that I have, which is to provide free tuition at the Vermont State Colleges for all four years, which would cost $28 million. But right there, $18 million comes from raising the minimum wage. Before we get into that, and I do want to address that, that um, issue of education and your plan to have free tuition, but on that question of raising the minimum wage, of course, opponents argue that employers – won't be able necessarily to afford that immediate increase or an increase to $15 an hour and will either cut hours for some of their employees or lay off workers if the minimum wage is raised, effectively making employees' incomes either this is the same as they were or no income because they've been laid off. So how would that balance out with your plan for decreasing the need for social services by raising the minimum wage? Well, the, the, the fact is that most low-wage uh, uh, jobs – are service jobs these days, and they need to be performed. You know, you're, you're, no matter what, you can't load somebody on a ski lift at Stowe from New Hampshire. You're going to have to do that in Vermont. You can't flip a hamburger uh, in Hinsdale, New Hampshire, and serve it in, in Vermont. So uh, the, the, I don't think very many of those jobs are going, going to go away. And the experience, actually, in states that have raised the minimum wage uh, is quite often that their unemployment rate goes down. In uh, New Jersey, for example, raised the minimum wage. Pennsylvania across the border did not. And in fact, unemployment in New Jersey went down uh, after raising the, the minimum wage. So I think, uh, sure, there'll be, there'll be some businesses will, which will find it difficult, but the reality is that uh, uh, so many more Vermonters will win and the state as a whole will win. Well, and of course, unemployment and underemployment are two different things. And we often find in Vermont that underemployment is as significant an issue, if not more so, than unemployment. Sure. Uh, but uh, again, I think we address the problem for pe paying people well for the hours that they work. And of course, many people who are uh, are working not just one job, but two or three jobs and, and finding it next to impossible to make ends meet. Raising, we, we talk a lot about government programs to combat poverty, uh, and of course that then is paid for by every other, by every taxpayer. Uh, raising the minimum wage is something that actually saves the taxpayers' money and does more to combat poverty than anything the state could do. The state doesn't have a lot of surplus resources, which is why so much of what we do doesn't really have a have a big impact. Uh, you know, beyond providing for the basics, education, roads, uh, environmental protection, 
uh, we, we, we don't have extra money the way the, the federal government does, which, of course, can borrow as it did during the stimulus period. Let's go to Kate, who's calling in from Milton. Hi, Kate. Go right ahead. You're on the air. I want Mr. Galbraith to know I totally support the elevation in minimum wage and the employer's argument that they won't be able to afford it. If they would get more out of their employees and better quality work if they would pay these people something that is worth going to work for. But the main reason I'm calling is the people, the parents who have these adult children who are mentally ill and drug addicted have no support. We have senior citizens living with violent, mentally ill adult children where they can get absolutely no help. I know personally a friend of mine called Howard Mental Health 42 times in a month and got no help for her son until he was so psychotic that they had to take him to Berlin. And I would like to know what his plans are to help these people who are in dire straits trying to get help for their adult children. Kate, thanks for the call. Peter Galbraith? Well, well, thanks, Kate, for, Kate, for that question. And I, I will say that raising the minimum wage, making everybody better off, is will go some distance toward addressing that problem. But the real issue, I, I go to a number of candidate forums, and what you hear all the time is, well, uh, when the question of opiate addiction or, or these kinds of questions come up, we need a more robust mental health system. We need to do more on prevention. We need to do more on education. Uh, and then the candidates don't say anything about how they're going to pay for it. So if you're not going to address how you're going to pay for it, you really are not doing anything meaningful. And I'm prepared to talk about how to pay for it. I, I will have a proposal tomorrow that will eliminate $45 million in special interest tax breaks uh, that will save ordinary taxpayers $45 million. These are things that no working Vermonter makes use of. They're, they're sold to us as if they would promote economic uh, growth, but they, they don't. Uh, and that provi- that will provide money for education, but it also will provide additional resources to address the problems that you're talking about. And that plan you say is going to come out tomorrow? Yes. All right. We'll look for that plan. <laughs> uh, you mentioned, Peter Galbraith, that one of your um, one of the, the campaign promises that you're making is to establish a plan and to try to get a plan put forward that would have free tuition at state colleges for Vermont residents. What would that do for Vermonters that isn't currently in the way that we finance higher education in this state? Well, you know, Bernie Sanders, when he campaigned for president, he talked about free tuition at um, public colleges and universities. And we can actually do that in the state of Vermont to make the five Vermont state colleges tuition-free for all Vermont high school graduates would cost about $28 million more than what we currently spend. Uh, And so I will outline... uh, how you get there. But of course, you get up to $18 million simply by raising the minimum wage and no longer than having to make those payments under the earned income tax credit. There are other special tax breaks that, that have no just no, no rationale except that the powerful lobbyists got them. I'll give you one example. If you go to your auto store, uh, auto parts store, and you buy a new carburetor, you pay a sales tax on it. But if you're wealthy enough to have a private airplane, you don't pay a sales tax on, on the uh, parts for your airplane. That costs us, the rest of the taxpayers, $1.1 million. And there are lots of things like that. You know, it's a, a choice. Do we want to subsidize rich people uh, and their private airplanes, or do we want to subsidize public education? 
Uh, and the reason why this is so important, and there are about 8,000 Vermont high school graduates at the uh, Vermont State Colleges, uh, is that college is the pathway to a much better employment future. Uh, and w- one of the cost is a major deterrent. Uh, the, the tuition at, these, at the state colleges is uh, about $10,300. And that means that somebody coming out of the state colleges uh, have, will have a debt of up to $43,000. And what does that mean? It means that person uh, is not is not going to be able to buy a house. Uh, it may affect uh, such a such basic basic decisions as whether to start a family, uh, and that that's that's just not right. I think we will do much better investing in education than, frankly, in supporting people uh, who like to fly around in their private airplanes. You mentioned some tax loopholes that you think we shouldn't have. Is there any tax or fee in place today in Vermont that you would take steps to repeal as governor? Oh, there, there are many. Uh, first, I, I cited uh, the um, loophole uh, that allows you to buy airplane parts without paying a sales tax, uh, whereas you would on, say, auto parts. Uh, there is a uh, exemption from the sales tax for products you buy on the cloud. So, and that costs taxpayers $4 million a year. That, the legislature just put that in. So if you buy the product at Staples, you pay the sales tax. If you buy it on the cloud, you don't pay, pay the sales tax. Uh, how did this uh, get into place? It's because the cloud lobbyists, the cloud companies, hired lobbyists in Montpelier, and they argued if Vermont got rid of that sales tax, it could become a technology hub. Well, they made the same argument at every other state legislature, and I can guarantee you not every state's going to become a, a technology hub. Uh, we have an investment tax credit that actually subsidizes uh, investments in coal. Why would we do that? Uh, it, it doesn't make sense. We have a research and development tax credits that are additional to the federal tax credit. They're intended to promote research and development, but the reality is they simply reward investment decisions that have already been made. And again, when you award people a tax credit, it basically means you're raising the taxes on everybody else. Yeah, but those are those are different than repealing an actual tax that's on the books or a fee. I mean, closing a loophole or removing an exemption or removing a credit is different than removing a tax that's already on the books for people. Sorry, I think I, I mis- misunderstood your question. No. Uh, I wouldn't be repealing uh, taxes that are on the books, but the one thing I would do is to transfer uh, some of the property tax to the income tax. I served on the Senate Finance Committee, and in fact, uh, I had with their seven members, I got three on my amendment, which would have uh, 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 eliminated the pass through the federal itemized deductions. That would have taken about $70 million uh, 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 from the income tax, put it in the education fund, and we would have had no uh, no increases in income ta- in property tax over these last six years if it had passed, but it came one vote short. So is that one of the ways that you'd like to relieve pressure on the way we currently fund our public education system by moving some of that pressure from the property tax to the income tax and sales tax? A- absolutely. Uh, I, as you know, I represented Wyndham County in the Vermont Senate, and uh, the tax that my constituents hated the most is the property tax. And I understand it. You've got to come up with a large amount of money. You're, you're, the ownership of your property is at, at risk. Uh, and so I, I think we ought to listen to Vermonters. Uh, we can lower the property taxes by transferring it uh, more of the burden of education to income tax, which is the case in most other states. 
uh, and uh, uh, it's a more fair system. Those who are better off will pay more. That's the whole point of the income tax. Do you believe that Vermont needs to consolidate schools or school districts? Uh, well, this is a, an interesting question. I, I don't think we actually have a crisis in education funding. Uh, Forty years ago, uh, my girlfriend at the time taught at Leland and Gray High School in Townsend. And uh, she actually was from out of state, from, from Virginia, although not a southerner, the Washington suburbs. And, uh, you know, the, the students thought of her as a pretty ex- exotic person. Uh, Forty years later, in that same high school, they teach Mandarin and the kids go to China uh, in the spring. Uh, so, yes, we're, we're paying more. We have, we're paying uh, – uh, uh, we, we have 50,000 fewer students but we're still paying the same 5% of the state GDP as we did in the 1970s. We're just providing a lot more opportunity for young Vermonters. So, again, I didn't think we had a crisis that required consolidation. But now, of course, uh, consolidation is, is underway. I think we need to be very flexible about it. Uh, and, uh, you know, I'm skept- skeptical of the of many of the cost savings that are proposed, partly because some of these small school districts pay their teachers much less than the larger ones, when they're consolidated, of course, you have to raise the, the salaries of the teachers from those smaller school districts. Now, Secretary of Education Rebecca Holcomb would say it's not just about cost savings. The idea of uh, district consolidation and even school consolidation would be opportunity for all kids. So not all of them are learning Mandarin, presumably. No. Uh, and certainly there are. there's a lot of romanticism about the one-room uh, schoolhouse uh, but uh, it didn't always provide quality education. So, yes, to, to the extent that consolidation provides uh, better opportunities, that, 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 is, that, that is a good thing. The, um, but, but it seems to me that this ought to be left to the, the local communities. And one of the things that we're losing in consolidation is the extraordinary invo- involvement of school boards, essentially of volunteers uh, in, in our education system. I mean, Vermont is an extraordinary place for the number of people who actually serve in one way or another in in public service, basically as volunteers. And so when we consolidate, we're losing a lot of that involvement, uh, some of which we now will end up paying for. So I think think that's another loss of the consolidation process. But where communities want it, where there are better educational opportunities, yes, there's an argument for doing it. Nathan writes, Mr. Galbraith, can you talk about your position on gun control? Do we need more gun control legislation in Vermont? Uh, thank you. Yes, I think we do. Uh, I think there's no logic in having background checks and then allowing private sales to take place without background checks. Obviously, uh, if somebody does, isn't qualified to buy a gun uh, through the background check system, they are going to do it privately. Uh, and that defeats the whole point of the system. And the second thing uh, that I'm in favor of uh, and have called for is a ban on military-style assault weapons. Uh, as a diplomat, I served in Croatia and Bosnia during the war, as well as in Afghanistan. And I saw firsthand what the, the consequences of these weapons. They, they are not sporting weapons. They are not useful for self-defense. They are basically useful for killing large numbers of people, uh, and these are the weapons, particularly the AR-15, that has been used in one mass shooting after another in the United States. How do you define assault weapon, though? There's some, there are a lot of questions about what an assault weapons ban would actually mean. Well, well th- this, of course, would be something that one would work out with the um, legislature. 
But basically, uh, it is a weapon that uh, uh, has a large magazine that can shoot off a lot of bullets in a very short period of time, an automatic or semi-automatic uh, uh, weapon. So would, would ammo restrictions be more along the lines of what you're going here for in terms of um, large magazines, large capacity magazines? That's where the real ban is? Well, I think it is also on the, on the type of weapon. But yes, I think on large capacity magazines and, and even on certain types of, uh, of, of bullets, for example, armor-piercing bullets, uh, they, the, uh, they're prohibited from being uh, manufactured uh, but they, or imported into the United States, but they can still be sold. These are cop-killing bullets, and, and it makes no sense to allow their sale. Do you support the legalization of marijuana, and what would your policy look like if you become governor? Well, I'm not in favor of the use of marijuana. Uh, and if the question was, uh, should Vermont uh, 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 go Vermonters be using marijuana, my position would be no. But the reality is that Vermonters do use marijuana. And so legalization is not about increasing the use of marijuana. It's about legalizing something that has already gone on uh, where prohibition has not worked. Uh, and so I am in favor of legalization. I think there are uh, three main uh, advantages to legalization. Uh, first is that it actually will be easier to keep marijuana away from young people. Uh, young people today can find uh, marijuana much more easily than they can obtain alcohol, and that's because it's not regulated. Uh, second, uh, when you're buying uh, marijuana on the black market, you don't know what it is you're buying. You don't know the purity of it. You don't know the the power of it. If it's uh, sold through uh, licensed uh, outlets, uh, there'll be regulation and, and, and buyers will know they'll get a safer product. And finally, uh, it should be a source of revenue to the state. Uh, these, these transactions are going on and the state uh, is getting no revenue at all. If it's legalized, uh, there'll be more money into the coffers of the state for essential public services. Let's go to Andy, who's calling in from Brattleboro. Hi, Andy. Go right ahead. Your thoughts. Hi. Uh, thank you for tackling all these tough issues. Uh, I wanted to ask you about uh, wind development in Vermont. And i just make a real short statement and then ask you to clarify your sort of blanket opposition to what you call industrial wind. Um, as I drive around Vermont, I see cell phone towers on mountaintops, ridge lines all over the place. I'm looking at one right now. I drive around Brattleboro. We have telephone poles, power wires tangled all over every street in the town. There was a time in Vermont where all these wooded hillsides were cleared for raising sheep. I don't understand if we're not going to have Vermont Yankee and we're not going to flood huge areas of Vermont for hydroelectric power. One of our natural resources is wind passing over our ridgelines. Our family has a joke whenever we see uh, windmills, uh, power-generating windmills, we always say, oops, unsightly windmills. But we don't mean it. We always feel proud that there is indigenous production of power going on. And I just would like you to explain why you've made a blanket opposition to significant generation of electricity through wind power on Vermont Ridgelines. Andy, thanks for the I'll call. Think. Peter Galbraith? Well, first, we, we have a problem as a world, and it's uh, global warming. Along with nuclear weapons, uh, global warming 
is the biggest threat that we face to, to human survival. Nuclear weapons would eliminate uh, civilization instantly, and global warming is something that is coming along over time, and it will have the same impact if we don't address it. But that doesn't mean that every solution makes sense for the state of Vermont. And my problem with industrial wind, uh, and I'm not talking about small-scale wind projects, I'm not talking about uh, uh, community projects, I'm talking about these gigantic projects that go on top of, of Vermont ridgelines, uh, uh, which are done by uh, huge um, multinational utilities, uh, is the environmental damage that these projects do. Uh, and it, if, if you could simply parachute the turbines or, or helicopter the turbines onto the ridgelines, then the impact would be mainly visual and people could have a debate about that. But in order to get these uh, turbines up, you have to build enormous roads going up the ridgelines. You have to blast away the, the top of the mountains to, to put in the platforms. Uh, this destroys places that are the most pristine places in the state, uh, very often the areas that were never cleared uh, and which are also very important for wildlife habitats. Uh, and the, the end result is uh, energy that is not green. I don't think Vermonters quite understand this. Basically, the utilities sell the renewable energy credits out of state. Uh, and so the, the wind projects, they're, they're not allowed to say that they're green energy because they are not. Basically, they're sold to Connecticut utilities and Connecticut industries so that the, those industries can continue to burn fossil fuels and at the same time call their energy green. Uh, and they can do it without uh, having to uh, destroy their precious Connecticut hills. I, I don't think that Vermont hills should be the, if you will, the dumping ground so that Connecticut hills can remain pristine. To, but there are other forms of renewable energy that I think are, are very important. Uh, first, the, the most important investment that we can make would be in efficiency and conservation. Uh, you get 10 times the carbon uh, reduction for every dollar that you invest in efficiency and conservation as you do in other forms of renewable energy. And of course, there are no adverse environmental consequences to uh, the kilowatt uh, to not generating uh, energy as there are with uh, other forms of uh, energy, including renewables. Second, I'm in favor of buying the Connecticut River dams. Those would meet about uh, a third of our baseload uh, and so we would be uh, substantially on our way to uh, toward um, uh, meeting our goals of uh, 90% renewable by by 2050. And yes, those dams did damage, but they're already uh, environmental damage. But that damage was done a century ago. And then I'm in favor of solar, but it should be, of course, properly sited. Uh, and there's no reason why it can't be sited in accordance with uh, Act 250 and uh, and the uh, town plans. We got a note. Uh, it actually came in on Reddit during your AMA, and uh, all five of the candidates who are on our Meet the Candidate interviews are also doing Reddit AMAs or Ask Me Anything. And uh, this was from someone who is using the same handle confusingly as one of the editors generally posting favorable updates on your Wikipedia page. But somebody going by the name of Western Civil asks this pointed question. How can Vermonters trust you when you say you support renewables but amassed a fortune from Middle Eastern oil deals and oppose an entire renewable technology? I think uh, referring there to Ridgeline Industrial Wind. Well, I've, I've explained my position on industrial wind. I, I think it is environmentally harmful. Uh, and 
my role in in uh, in Kurdistan uh, basically has been to help the people of Kurdistan, the, the country, to get two things they want and that I think they should have: their own independent country, and with that, the resources uh, to sustain it. And if it were not for the fact that uh, uh, Kurdistan's developed its own oil resources, it certainly would have been overrun by the Islamic State, uh, and the uh, atrocities would have been many multiples worse as to what's happened already. But you also did make quite a bit of money off these oil deals. So you were profiting off oil deals. Uh, I, yes. Um, I, I had a profit-sharing arrangement with a, a company. Uh, in fact, the company never made a profit, but it broke the contract. So naturally, I pursued it in court, and then I won a breach of contract uh, settlement. But it was, it was certainly very generous, not nearly as generous, unfortunately, as what has been reported. But the suggestion there, I guess, is that you you benefit from fossil fuel deals. So so there's a question, at least in this user, of how to trust you on the idea of pushing forward renewable energy. Well, more broadly, uh, obviously, fossil fuels are going to be part of our economy for some time to come. I suspect uh, that that uh, uh, person who wrote probably drives a car, and that car is probably uh, powered by gasoline. So the question is, more broadly from an environmental perspective, is where the gasoline should come from. If you take it from fracking and, uh, or from uh, oil sands, you do a lot of environmental damage. If you do it in the Middle East, particularly in Kurdistan, uh, the environmental costs of extracting the oil are very low. And uh, as I said, it, it also helps and oppress people uh, obtain their independence, which uh, I support. I might add that uh, if, if that I actually initiated the successful effort of the Vermont Senate to ban fracking. So I'm no friend of the fossil fuel industry. Uh, as I said, I led the, the effort to ban fracking, and uh, my effort was opposed by the American petroleum industry. Peter Galbraith is a Democrat, hoping to be his party's candidate for governor of Vermont. Peter, thank you very much for being on the show today. Jane, great to be with you. That was Vermont Edition's Jane Lindholm speaking with Democratic candidate for governor Peter Galbraith. For more from the candidates for governor, head to VPR.net, where you'll find all of our coverage of the gubernatorial race, including debates between the Republican and Democratic candidates, AMAs with each of the candidates, and the latest news on the campaigns. And of course, tune into Vermont Edition on Wednesday, August 10th at noon and 7 p.m. for results and analysis of Tuesday's primary. I'm Meg Malone. And I'm Sam Gale Rosen. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.